Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. is episode 225 of the Sausage Factory. In this episode I talk to Jean Canales of White Rabbit about their action-adventure game Death's Gambit. But before we delve into that, let's talk about what else is under the Cane and Rinse umbrella. First we have Cane and Rinse every Monday, of course. This week, actually next week, because I'm so excited I want to talk about next week at the time of recording this show and time of broadcasting this show. Or releasing it, whatever you want to call it, is Pilot Wings. Yes, they're talking about Pilot Wings on the SNES or SNES or Super NES. I don't know. I streamed that the other week on Twitch. Speaking of which, we have a Twitch channel. That's right, we do. If you look up Cana Rinse, or one word, under Twitch, voila, you will have a glorious stream of to follow and things. We do stream two games, two things, as I say, two games. Firstly, the Sea of Thieves every Thursday night at 9 o'clock, British summertime, or GMT, depending on what time of year it is. And there's a big patch coming out for that game. So myself uh, and Darren Gargett are very excited about finally we might find some content. And then on Sundays, we actually, or I, we stream a random game of, you know, sometimes it's linked to Cana Rinse and what they're talking about. Sometimes it isn't. It all depends what the whim takes me but I'll play a game for an hour and uh, on a Sunday evening so please do join me and heckle if you so wish and then on uh, Wednesdays we have Sound of Play where video game music is celebrated from all eras and then finally on Thursdays there's Playwright where two people called Ryan try to make games based on ideas provided to them by the listeners it's most entertaining. I'd highly, highly recommend it. If you want to know more about Cane and Rinse, do pop along to caneandrinse.com where you not only read and sort of delve into archives of previous podcasts, previous episodes of podcasts, but also there's blog posts, features, reviews, and a active forum. So yeah, do pop along there. 
Finally, if you want to throw some money our way, I'm not going to say no to that, if you can subscribe to Patreon. We have a Patreon, of course. And um, if you do, you actually get bonus content. You also get early content. That's right. So if you subscribe, $1 a month, just one US dollar a month, you will gain access to Cane and Rinse one week early. Yes, exciting. And also, there are extended editions as well. So rather than limiting down to the two hours that we have, we'd actually expand out to more than two hours. So if you want to hear more about Pilot Wings, then, you know, the only way to do that is to subscribe for just one dollar a month. That's all we want. It's not that much to ask. There's also uh, exclusive access to uh, the platform, single platform uh, podcasts that are done. We've done so far Mega Drive and Game Boy. They've recently released out to the general public. But behind a paywall, there is the Xbox, the original Xbox. There's an episode dedicated to that glorious machine. So uh, without further ado, let us move on to the main feature. Take it away, past me. John, who are you and what do you do? All right. Uh, well, I'm John Canellis. Uh I'm sort of director on the project. Um, I also have another director on the project, and that is Alex Cubadera. Um, he's art director, um, and we both kind of work together on the, on the story. But besides that, um, I pretty much do half of the programming. We have another programmer on the team as well. Um, I also do, a, I pretty much work on most of the enemy designs, most of the character design, um, a lot of the level design. Um, I do a little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, of course. So uh, you're uh, one of White Rabbit. How many is made up of your fine studio? So, so it depends on the time of year and on the time of the project. Right. Um, so at times we have had you know, one animator and sometimes it kind of goes up to like five animators depending on uh, where we're at. Um, right now we have uh, three full-time animators on the project. Um, we have another programmer, John Jonathan Devil, and we have Alex Widder, and that's his team right now. Um, yeah. So it's about it's about six people right now full Okay. Time. Excellent. Um, it's, it's remarkable considering what you've made. Um, yeah. Because it is they're very, very beautiful, and the uh, there's a lot, lot going on. But we're coming it to is, that. It is a surprisingly big uh, project, yes. 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 <laughs> Probably didn't start out like that. Anyway, so the next question, then, is how did you make your start making video games? Um, okay, sure, that's a very good question. I um, So were I... I technically started when I was a little kid. I was kind of just Googling. I wanted to, I didn't know how to make games. Um, I would talk to I would tell my parents that I wanted to make games. I would tell my family and no one really knew what to, how to help me. Um, I, um, I was born and raised in, uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, and pretty much there's no, no one I knew knew anything about programming. No one, nobody knew anything about it, (laughs) anything related to games, essentially. So I ended up Googling, uh how to make games and i found a prod uh, i found a program called game maker yes um and i just started making stuff on my own um i would say i i will i must have been in around seventh grade or eighth grade when i found it so i i had been kind of messing around with it 
a lot um, in high school. I made a few small games that are still out there online that are not super, you know, impressive, but uh, there's, I still made them. Um, and then when I, uh, when, when I went to college where I went to uh, USC in Los Angeles, um, so I, I wanted to go make games and then I applied to USC and a few other schools and I was accepted. Um, and I went to USC, which is the one that I wanted to go to, um, to the game design school, um, there. Um, and that is what I studied and I kept working on games over there. Um, mostly just programming and designing. That's kind of just been my thing. Uh, and so that that's kind of was my route. That's how I started making games. Um, I uh, I kind of I learned Unity. I learned Unreal, but I kind of still kept up with Game Maker as I as I went on. Um, and for two D games, I always felt like it was the best for prototyping and it was the best for uh, for just quick iteration. And I ended up making that game at End Game Maker because of that because I just knew I could make it super quickly at the time. <laughs> Although I feel like Unity at this point would have probably been just as long, just as quick, um, but uh, regardless, that's that's how I that's how I got to where I'm at today. I did um, do a couple of of jobs before this. I I worked for USC for a little bit, and then I also worked at Backflip Studios, which is a mobile studio in Colorado, um, and worked there for three months as an intern. Worked on three different games, and that was an amazing learning experience. Um, after that, uh, I finished college and then I started this project my last year there. Um, and we've been working on it ever since. And that's kind of been my story. No, it's a great uh, story. Yeah. Now, I've had a uh, whole range from everyone from when they started in the mid eighties. Seriously. <laughs> uh, I've had, yeah. I've had, I've had guests on like that who, uh, who <laughs> it, was, it was even worse for them because there was no game. Yeah. At all. all they had was computer science. That's the closest they could get. No game design sort of uh, uh, courses of all or, or, um, of any of or degrees. So I was about to get my mouth uh, that word degrees. Yeah, none, none of that. It's just computer. You know, computer science. I don't know. Just make up as you go along, and that's what a lot of them did. You know, sitting in their bedrooms, coding away in assembly. Because you know, because oh, the computers were were very basic and they couldn't run high level languages um, like C and stuff like that, so they had to go straight to the to the numbers, my friend. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then I, yeah, I would not have been able to make it in 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 high school learning C or assembly or anything. I would have given up pretty quickly. Yes, yes, but no, I think it's wonderful that um, you can use tools. And uh, like um, Game Maker, but eventually you end up, like you said, you've become uh, conversant with other engines as, as time's gone by and found yourself mm. using C Sharp and maybe C++, I don't know, uh, to, yeah. to, to, yeah. to achieve what you'd think, well, you know, asked me this sort of 10 years ago as a teen, teenager or what have you, like, I would not have a clue what I'm talking about. Yeah, here I am, you know, doing somersaults and gymnastics <laughs> with, uh, with code. Uh, like I would not believe, uh, because you have to learn, and the only way to learn is to be either by your successes or your failures. Uh, not enough people talk about learning from successes. It's odd. They all talk about learning about yeah. failures. And like, well, what about when you do things right? Uh, yeah. 
Okay. Can we learn from that too? Like, I guess. So, yeah. No, it's a wonderful this sort of a story. And the fact that um, I always like to go back to Hotline Miami. When I think of when I think of Game Maker, I just marvel. Marvel that that game was made with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there's, you know, you're right, 2D was great or is great on Game Maker. Um, and Unity was lagging behind quite a lot uh, for, for 2D yeah. stuff until I think about three or four years ago. You may correct me, but I think it's relatively recent that Unity went, maybe we should uh, support 2D after all. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it definitely was. Uh, well, I, I, I also had so much knowledge about Game Maker at the time where I just felt. Um, I would make it a little bit slower than if I had made it in Game Maker, which is why we did it so. And now there's been a lot of other big projects um, that have worked out in Game Maker, like Undertale and Hyperlife Drifter um, that are, I guess, th- there's a few others that are just, just as big um, yeah. that have come out. Um, and yeah, it works. Um, it works. It works. So stop. For 2D, it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. So... Wonderful story from where you, your, your uh, initial beginnings and the fact that you had family around you like I have no idea these 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 things is the pure magic out of a hat. Uh, <laughs> they, you now know that's not true. Um, but before no. you embark in creating things, I'd like to ask you, representing White Rabbit as a studio, what are your biggest influences as a creative force? Um, sure, I. Uh... I will say for Death's Gambit, there's a lot of specific influences. I, I, if I were to talk about myself and not Death's Gambit, yeah, um, the, there's a lot of similar things. But I'll just go talk mostly about myself. I, I do watch a lot of movies and I watch a lot of games. Mostly, I mean, sorry, I play a lot of games. Yeah, and I mostly play just a lot of games. Um, when I was a kid, that was just. I, I played just way too many things. Right, <laughs> so right. I would say both of my biggest influences are are just from games. Um, right. I would say games from uh, uh, from Shigeru Miyamoto and from Hideo Kojima and from uh, I guess lately um, Miyazaki of of Dark Souls fame uh, have been some of my greatest influences. I would say uh, still to this day, I, I really look up to all of them, um, and all of their games are amazing. Um, and I, I would say, I would say, uh, a few American developers as well. You know, uh, I think retro studios really influenced me a lot with their Metroid prime games. And I think, uh, uh, Blizzard did as well at the time, uh, influenced me a lot. Uh, I, uh, I was definitely a big fan of Warcraft three and world of Warcraft, um, back, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of, back. I have to say I've got a lot of love for Warcraft 3. People yeah. don't really talk about that game nearly enough. It, 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 yeah. uh, it was important. It did things, important things. Yeah. And uh, it created the hero sort of unit, um, I believe. I may be wrong in that, but uh, it's one I remember yeah. it most. And, uh, of course, we have the um, infamous um, mod that became a monster. Um, so, but yeah. so let's not talk about that. Uh, but yeah, it's I do remember the little portraits in the bottom right hand corner, it was the left hand corner, I can't the right hand corner, yeah. And they would do, they would do things and look at you and say things as you were ordering them around. It's uh, 
it was it was different. It, it linked the player to what was going on in the field rather than just detachingly moving little toy soldiers around. They actually came alive. It was, it was important. So yeah, it, it was a very important game. Yeah, it, 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 it changed a lot of things. It changed everything. I, I would say just like you know, just like Dark Souls changed a lot of things, and I think Metal Gear Solid changed a lot of things. I, I think I, I mostly value games that just um, either are very memorable. Or, or do something that I think uh, improves, you know, it, it changes the way we look at the medium or improves, you know, the, the genre, I guess. Uh, okay. So anything else? So the, obviously media, generally films, other games, anything else you think that influences you as a creative force? I think a lot of indie games actually influenced me as I was growing up, probably because um, since I was just making a lot of Game Maker games, I would always um, Google just other indie projects online. I think um, that definitely seeped into the, into my influences for the years. Um, you know, I followed, um, what is it, uh, Matt, uh, Matt from Matt Makes Games. He, uh, he made Celeste and he made uh, Towerfall. Um, and I had been following his his games since he started in game make, like making game maker games. I guess back in middle school and high school. Like I, I think um, I think that was a big influence on me as well. Um, and just a lot of other indie creators I, I would find online. I would play all kinds of silly, simple games. <laughs> um, just just um, almost to get more inspired to make my own silly, simple indie games. Um, there's a there's a lot, and I think there's a moment in Death's Gambit that shows maybe a little bit of that influence. Um, I um, there's a part where Death plays. Uh, you actually see him playing a indie game in the in Death's Gambit. Um, you see him playing Passage by Jason Rohr. Right. Um, yes, yeah, so he's <laughs> playing that game, and the only way I I that's a that's a different story, but um, I basically emailed him to see if it was okay and he was totally fine with it he said it was a i believe i don't know the right term for it but it was like free free um free property i, I don't even know it's like a, a global property so anyone can really do anything with it or something like that he's <laughs> almost creative um, commons but yes yeah. uh, and i just sent him a donation regardless um because i i thought it was really cool of him to just be okay with that um but uh he uh, he said it was okay, and it, it's in game. It's you know, it just shows my uh, my appreciation for his games and my appreciation for just a lot of uh, indie games in general. So so that's definitely been a big influence here. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. So this next question, you probably answered it already just a moment ago, but I have to ask it anyway because it gives you a chance to go. Actually, I can shine a light on this person. Basically, what developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Sure. Oh man, that is that is too hard. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I should award you. These questions get harder as, we, as things go on. So yeah, it's a bit like a video game in that regard. Anyway. Well, yes. I mean, since since again, most of my influences are 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 video games. Really, um, it's uh, I, I it's hard to just say one. But if I were to say one, I'll just um, I I will say me as I. Um, but I, I think I can say, uh, probably a little bit more about Hideo Kojima, probably. Okay. I, I am definitely one of those people who, who definitely 
over time has always been super excited for his projects and you know every single one of his games uh i've, I've really loved um i think uh i i definitely like games that have kind of like a big vision um sometimes from from one person not not that i uh think it's the the one way to make games <laughs> in fact i i believe games are 100 a collaborative project but his uh his games always end up being really weird and out there and i think that's partly why just because it's got of a a lot of a personality and a lot of a, a lot of himself in it probably um but uh i definitely i do love how um I do love boss assigning games. You, you might, I, we, we could talk about this a little bit more later on, but, um, but generally, um, just any, any game with like really crazy out there boss designs that I love. And I think, uh, he really got away with doing some crazy stuff with Metal Gear Solid one, two, and three. Um, I would say four as well. Um, yeah, a lot of weird, you know, yeah. obviously Psycho Mantis is like one of the most famous boss battles in gaming. Um, there's also the end, um, and uh, the fear. I believe in Metal Gear Solid Three, which really are like really crazy um, moments in both of those in, in both of those games. Um, yeah, I agree. It's um, I, I have a lot of fun memories of the first Metal Gear game, or Metal Gear Solid. Sorry, not first Metal yeah. Gear because that's MSX, which we could go on about, but let's not. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> um, it's not that kind of show. Uh, it's uh, although I do have a copy. Yeah, I know. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, the first Metal Gear Solid game was just ridiculous in every sense <laughs> yeah. of the word, and yeah. it wasn't. It just it came at a very odd time when games were were still very, you know, they're still trying to figure things out and trying to figure out where they were in the world, and they're still doing that to this day, to be frank, but back then, people don't realise how naive people really were, and uh, and then when things, when, you know, Metal Gear Solid was just so different to everything else, I mean, when you try to capture it, so what is it then? Stealth action yeah. adventure game? With yeah, it's, some, uh, it's weird. With some RPG and, and narrative elements? What? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, sorry. Oh. The best response to that is just play it. I don't know. Just, what about like weird controls? Yeah, there's, there's that. That's going to stick around for a while as well. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's weird. It is. Um, but how they managed to squeeze so much out of so little, little being the PlayStation One, was just astonishing. You know. But then again, they, you know, yeah, yeah, all those warp textures. Textures. <laughs> That's what they've play- always been. Uh, oh, they've always been games that like have always been like a, just a little bit step ahead from everyone else, at least in terms of like uh, graphical fidelity and all, all kinds of, you know, a lot of the game mechanics are always a little bit improved. Although I, I, I believe at times, I think during Metal Gear Solid Three, maybe even I could say that uh, Splinter Cell had some some better stealth mechanics, which then in Metal Gear Solid Five, I think it had a little bit more of that and. The gameplay felt a lot tighter. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's it. you know, Splinter Cell was a good good series of games. So let's not, you know. Yeah. But you're right. It's not. It's. it's I will go back to that. Is this is a hard question because now I wish I could talk a little bit more about Miyazaki, and I wish I could talk yeah. a little bit more about any any anything really. But um, yeah. 
It's yeah, it's a difficult question. I mean, one of the ones I like to open in Gambit, as I say to people, is that you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> yeah, because you might yeah. have close friends that are developers and like, well, you, you did no. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, last question of the first half is a question I'm legally obliged to ask because it's a podcast about video games. Therefore, I must ask this question: What are you playing right now? Sure. Um... Well, I just finished a few games. I um, so, so I'm technically not playing anything right now, but I just got through Sekiro. Nice. I just got. Oh, sorry. Very well done. I feel like applauding. <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> uh, all these people going, oh, it's too hard. Like what the kind of the point? It's not too hard. It's just it requires you to learn how to play the game. It's not get good. Yeah. I'm not doing that. I'm not going down that road. I'm just saying. These 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 games and indeed Death Gambit falls into that category. That sorry, not category. Yeah. That kind of ethos. There you go. Of as you know, this isn't going to lead you by the nose. You need to figure this out, and you'll be rewarded once you figure it out. So, did you find that secure or? Um, absolutely. Um, it uh, it definitely is the first game in the series that kind of gave me. That that same experience as when I first played it, played the whole series, as when I played Dark Souls One or when I played Demon Souls, <laughs> um, where you're just kind of coming into the game and you're like trying to figure out uh, all the mechanics and all the systems and the world and how everything works together and what enemies you know are weak against what or what you should do for what situation, and it definitely is like you know baby steps at the start. You're trying to learn how to block. You're trying to learn how to you know what what works and what doesn't. Um, and I think uh, maybe at the start, it, it's a little bit um, too much about knowledge, maybe. Um, I would say it's okay. I actually kind of, I'm okay. I'm okay with it personally. Um, but there's, for example, situations where you might encounter, say, a, an enemy that blocks your attacks, which is t- 10 or 20 times easier if you have the axe already. Or uh, say you fight this, uh, this big bull early into the game that, say, is extremely challenging unless you have firecrackers, which makes it a joke. There's a few moments in the game where just having knowledge of having a certain item uh, just dramatically makes the game easier. Um, and uh, I would say it's a little bit interesting. It's a little weird, but but uh, but it is uh, an interesting uh, difficulty curve and an interesting uh, experience. I do I do like it that it's one of those games where it's just. It's a lot about knowledge, and and I played it. I, I actually played it with um, with a few friends over Discord, and we were just kind of talking about the game and helping each other out um, as we were all progressing the game uh, at this around the same time and around the same pace. And I think that might be an even better way to experience the game. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yes, it is a it is a challenging game. I would I would honestly, and I counted. I actually. Believe it or not, since since the original, since actually since Dark Souls One, I have sort of counted my deaths um, wow. for each of the games. I still remember a lot of them, and I will say, uh, Sekiro, I died about the same as my original Dark Souls One playthrough. Wow! Um, there it I don't is. know that. Yeah. Oh God. Sorry, I didn't so, mean to interrupt you. What? No, I was just thinking that uh, you know Dark Souls. Is that your first? Sort of, did you not do Demon Souls then? Or I did, yeah. Okay, right. So, but yeah, I mean, the Dark Souls and Demon Souls—they're quite different games. 
I think Demon Souls is even more quirky than the other. Um, yeah, uh, it is. It trust me. It's it's uh, it's it's it takes you your brain to places you would, would not expect, um, <laughs> in good ways, in my opinion. But the fact that the difficulty level, if we can literally equate it to number of deaths, is the same for Dark Souls One as Securos is that's interesting. I'm not sure what to take. What that takeaway is? is it a good, bad thing? What do you think? Um, it's it's. I wouldn't say good or bad. Nothing. Nothing really. Um, I I think. Um, I think. Uh, I I will say the final boss of Sekiro is much harder than anything in Dark Souls One. But for the most part, um, I would say that the games are are about as difficult. And I think the discussion that's being had about Sekiro today is a mirror to the same discussion we did have, honestly, when Dark Souls 1 came out. There, um, and Dark Souls 2, I believe. Around that time, we definitely have had a lot of articles of, of, of games, you know, of people wanting, say, easy mode. Um, I, think, I think right now we're talking a lot about accessibility, which is, I think, a whole different discussion. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, but we had also similar um, articles about people wanting the game to be to have an easy mode um, and it's interesting to me to hear that I don't I don't believe it needs that uh, but uh, but you know I'm always for more accessibility options I don't want to think that's a whole different rabbit hole of discussion which Indeed. I always don't even want to get into but yeah um, <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, but I think what it shows is just, you know, it's it's a similar experience from the yeah. original Dark Souls. And I think maybe some people um, might forget that. It's just it's just been a long time. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we head on to second half? Game wise? I don't I don't think so. Okay. No, it's, it, it kind of runs in the theme of what we're going to talk about a little bit. A little bit. But not much. Because I think... Well, we delve into this about now, really, about how we, how death scambit is a thing.
So, first question, the second half of the show. What is Death's Gambit? Okay. What do you think it is? I know, I know, I know what I think it is, but off you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is definitely a Metroidvania. Um, Souls-like experience. It's a. It borrows some of the elements from the Souls series. That is a stamina bar, um, and just the the more slower, methodical um, attacks, like the combat system. Some weapons are well. Some weapons are faster than others. Some make it feel more like a Castlevania game. Some make it feel more like a Dark Souls game. It also has a similar you know, on-death system as the Soul series, where when you die, you, you drop something. Uh, in the Soul series, you drop your experience points. Here, you drop a healing item on death. Um, so in that sense, it is, is a little bit similar. Um, and uh, you kind of just... Uh, it, it's, it's a metrovania. You go through the world um, killing progressively more powerful creatures, um, empowering your character, and uh, finding new levels and finding new areas and uh uncovering a, a story about um about immortality and, and death and well you start off very common but dead, yeah. don't you really i mean it's uh your rotting corpse yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's a bit odd and then they decide to bring you back well for reasons unknown uh and there's a very strange sort of interaction with the character there um and uh it's you know opens up. I can't remember his name. I'm not spoiling. It's, it's the opening thing. But uh, death does arrive and sort of gets you to sign a contract, um, and uh, which is actually part of the inventory, which looks quite amusing because <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there is humour in this game. It's, sometimes it's deliberate. Some of it's just uh, uh, morbid, <laughs> yeah. sort of like dark. Like what's that about? Um, I still I do remember encountering. The shop sort of person for the first time selling some stuff. It's largely junk. Some of it is interesting, and then I said, "Yeah, I'm not going to have it." And he started trying to stab me. Like, what? Oh, right, him. <laughs> uh, thank. <laughs> I uh, we I, I I think with him we just felt um, it was interesting to ride off the gate in the first level of the game to kind of impart a certain expectation to players. Just like uh, you know. NPCs work a little bit interesting, and you know, work yeah. work inter- in interesting ways in this game. I guess they do, they do. Just like in the Souls games, to be fair, you can kill key NPCs and find yourself um, uh, in a bit of a cul-de-sac or <clears throat> paint yourself into a corner. Uh, and uh, it reminded me of a bit like Spelunky, where you can kill the shopkeeper and then he or you steal stuff and then you have to kill him, and he gets a bit angry, but he's he's vicious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it reminded me of that. It made me smile a little bit. But um, no, it's a great setup and a great description of of Death's Gambit. Thanks for that. It's a uh, there's a lot to it, everyone, and we're going to delve into that now. It's got lots and lots of extraordinary moving parts that work together. They have to, otherwise the whole thing falls apart. But I want to talk to you. You already hinted at this about um, what happens when you die and you leave something behind, namely a feather. Uh, could you talk to me how these came about and how you integrated their creation and their, how intrinsic they are to the game of Death's Gambit? Are you talking about the systems as a whole or, or the feather uh, dropping system? Yeah, just really trying to get the idea of the link between 
the shards, the cost, which is something this is a resource, the currency that you gather from creatures that you kill in other places, as well as um, and and they and how they're linked to your leveling up and the the feathers themselves. So when you use the feathers to heal yourself, but also to to regenerate them, it, it's extraordinary. It's yeah. a little bit complicated, but as listeners may be trying to fathom now, is that or fathom? <laughs> um, not a word, Chris. Um, but it's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a. I just want to want you to expand on that. I find it amazing that you have this this system which balances leveling up versus um, gaining having a health um, sort of you know a healing uh, balm uh, and that kind of, and yet it's it's all. It's, very interesting, intricate, and yet easy to understand currency system. I just wanted you to expand on how it came about, please. Sure, and I do also want to add. There's also the the augment system where yes. you could use your turn your healing items into just more raw damage. It basically makes yeah. you just stronger to to uh, turn a feather into into more damage, and you could technically run the game without any healing items at all yes, yes. um <laughs> technically yes technically. Um, i'd love to see it done but yeah go on <laughs> so so it basically just started as us trying to um well we we know that the healing systems in games are honestly something that can make or break everything um and there's many games that in my opinion have been broken and are worse because their healing system is just not very solid i or i'm not a big fan of um, and i got a few um, but I, I think, um, we were trying to come up with new, new twists, honestly, on the souls genre. And at the same time, we we're also trying to see what else is interesting that they haven't tried that I think would, would create a lot of interesting situations. And I think that's how we ended up with the system that we have right now, where when you die, you, you drop one healing item on the ground that you can go back to that area and pick up and, and reclaim. Um, and if, um, and, and over time we also realized, oh man, wouldn't it be annoying if, you know, you died somewhere and, um, you, you kind of progressed to a different part of the game and you don't want to go back and pick it up because in, in dark souls, you actually, um, lose if you die once and then die a second time you lose and you never picked up your, uh, your souls on the ground, um, which you drop on death. Um, then, then the souls disappear forever. But in Death's Gambit, the feathers actually stay there. So it's a, it's technically a little bit more forgiving. So if you die twice in a row, um, well, it's forgiving in certain ways, but if you die twice in a row, then you've lost two feathers and they're both dropped at each location. Um, you can go pick them up or you can go progress somewhere else. And um, I think that's interesting. I think that's really interesting. Um, and then uh, at a save point, at any save point in the game, you can... You can use up experience to reclaim all your feathers, and I think um, that that ability came about just because um, it felt annoying to have to go back to certain feathers if you progress tomorrow. And that's how we ended up with that system. And then the augmenting system just kind of happened because I, as I played Dark Souls, I honestly felt like it was a feature I wanted in that game, um, where there were areas where I just had a lot of healing items, and I was just like, well, what if I could just roll the game with half the healing items to make it more interesting and I just have a little bit more damage. I felt like it was something that I would have done if I had that opportunity in those games and it makes things a little bit more interesting. During boss fights I might have uh, I might have uh, 
felt like it would have been useful. And I think a lot of the um, the changes to the combat system in Death's Gambit that are different from the Souls series is just because I wanted to add more strategy. Um, and uh, as opposed to raw muscle memory, I would say. A lot of, uh, a lot of bosses in, in the original Dark Souls are just about dodge rolling at the right time, or can be. Um, and I think that's less interesting. I, I, we've been trying to add as much strategy and um, a lot of, uh, I guess, stuff that requires you to just decide a specific, okay, I'm going to roll with this ability, I'm going to block this attack, I'm going to dodge that attack, I'm going to jump over this attack, um, I'm going to augment feathers for this boss, I'm not going to augment feathers for this boss. Um, I think uh, I just like that more. It's a personal preference. I think a lot of players actually rather have a game that's more about just dodge rolling at the right time and attacking at the right time. But I'm, I like strategy. Yeah, as evidenced by the uh, where where you went with this, the, the, you, you it gives the player choice whether they want to risk, or they could carry on going down the same path they've been bashing their head up against, or like you know what, let's go another way. There might be something more interesting the other way. Who knows? Um, and that's 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 that that sort of falling of choice is a form of strategy. It's strategizing. How are you going to conquer this game, or conquer the level, or the environment? Yes. Speaking of conquering things, I found that positioning and or position and timing is very important in Death's Gambit when engaging in enemies with enemies. How have you yes. found designing monsters that keep this challenging? Um, I I have definitely found that uh, making things challenging is easy. <laughs> Making things challenging and also feeling fun the whole way through is the is a true challenge uh, for me and for just I guess most game developers. Most game developers. Um, I uh, we actually got a so I'll, actually I was going to go into a different tangent, but I'll, I'll just answer your question directly and then go into that tangent. Okay. Um, we I'm, I'm definitely one of my one of the things that I love the most in making games is designing enemies actually. Um, and I think, um, and I think we, when designing each enemy, we try to come up with, okay, what is what is unique about this enemy that's different from everything else? And we also try to come up with animations that are um, a little bit different, at least in some aspects. Maybe, oh, this enemy delays his attack a little bit longer, or this enemy has a longer combo than than most other enemies, or um, it actually switches directions and and one attack. Um, and uh, I think we've been. Um, we've been improving at uh, being able to um, to almost telegraph certain things, make things more obvious for players. So I think one of the things in 2D games, and, and this happens with a few other uh, 2D combat games, but being able to tell when an enemy is going to turn around is important, being able to tell really well. And I think there's one enemy in the game that players really complained about, whether that was the Golden Knight Um and, uh, for example, we're working on new content right now and improving the game, and that's one enemy that we're looking at to, uh, to make, uh, to, feel, to feel better and feel a little bit more fair. Um, but regardless, um, I, would say, I would say that's how we, um, that's how we design our enemies, kind of. Um, okay. I don't know if that answered your question. I hope it did. No, it did, because <laughs> you can see where I was going with the question, because... What I'm trying to say is that eventually you go, well, I'll just do block, parry, 
slice, block, parry, slice. And mm. that doesn't really fly. Um, of course, what I've described there is simply for one of the character classes. There are many character classes, everyone, uh, and we'll come on to that later on in, in, this, in this show. But uh, if you're using one of the Malay base rather than sort of spellcasting ones, and it's like, no, touchy! Uh, <laughs> not the face, not the face. That's what I call wizards. Basically, they're very vain. Um, not the face. Um, it, uh, it's it, the being able to mix that up to make sure that when you encounter a new enemy, you're like, oh, what's this one going to do? <laughs> that's what yeah. every. That's what I love about playing these games. Is that I'm a big explorer. I love exploring. That's why I uh, play a lot of uh, adventure games. I'm a big fan of. Exploring worlds that other peoples have created. I love that. And mm. that's one of the things that drove me through the Scambias is that it's just an extraordinary world that you've created. And in order to get through it, one has to understand the rules of it. And uh, every time you saw a, uh, a new creature, it was like uh, there was a little bit of anxiety. No, more than a little bit of anxiety on my front. Because it's like, what, what am I going to do with this? What's it going <laughs> yeah. to do? Uh, is it going to, you know, suddenly explode into ten thousand skulls of death and just rain upon me? I don't know. No ideas, by the way. But um, no, it's so it, it's, it was always. I just wanted to ask you, how did you do that? How did you, you know, encourage that that sense of, you know, uh, not sort of dread, but the sense of. Okay, here's a new enemy. What are they going to do? And he just has to go figure it out. And uh, it sounds like you, you you've got it got it right. Of course you have. Otherwise, you know, the game wouldn't have been a success as it is. Okay. Uh, next question I have is about progression. Uh, I found that there's an incredible sense of progression within Death Gambit. It's it's very quick and discernible. You can, you can perceive it very quickly. Was this always the intention in the design of Death's Gambit? Uh, yes, yes. Um, and yeah, so, why was that then? I know why, but I want you to tell me. <laughs> are are you um, are you specifically talking about um, how much you progress through the game? I think there's, um, for I example, thinking, I think one thing that we. Oh, thinking, sorry, go on. I was thinking more about character development because we okay, delved into that because there's. There's there's a huge inventory, everyone. You have an inventory of stuff. You have levels and attributes that increase as you you know you motor your way through the game, for want of a better phrase. And there's also special abilities which you can unlock. So basically, just want to talk a bit about that and how you've managed to design it in such a way that it's rewarding for the player to as they get through as they succeed. Uh, but not too rewarding. I just want you to expand on that. How did you create that extraordinary balance? Um, okay. So so basically, um, the, the progression is pretty quick. I think it's just, um, it feels that way. Um, it, it is technically, you know, a shorter game than the Souls game. So so you kind of have to go through, through that same progression at a faster pace. Right. Um, you might be at level... You know, say you end up at the game at level 100, you might end up at level 22, almost in the second hour or third hour of the game. Um, the progression goes pretty quickly. And it's just uh, 
it's just it's just part of that process because of that. There's also I think um, it might be because of a system that we have in the game where you just get experience from losing the bosses. Um, when you die, you actually gain experience depending how well you did, um, or if you got if you did a little bit better than last time. Um, and that uh, that is kind of just us kind of trying to help a little bit to make you feel like okay, well maybe you, now you can do it now, uh, or you are doing better. See, you got a little bit more experience um, to kind of push players forward. I do feel like because that's Gambit is an indie game, players don't have the um, maybe the the uh, the push uh, and and pull that they might have as if they were playing a sixty dollar. Dark Souls game, and I feel like when they're fighting a boss, a really hard boss, they might be more inclined to almost give up in an indie game. Um, so, I, so I felt like my um, the intention with that system is just to keep players um, interested and in, in feeling like, okay, well, I did better. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> um, it's kind of it's kind of an encouragement, um, and I think that does make the progression feel a little bit faster. Um, I don't know if that's where you thought I was going with with that question, but uh, um, but that's my current answer on that. <laughs> Um, I think it's a mixture of two things. First of all, it's uh, you're right. The 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 game actually geography is actually smaller, so therefore yeah. it's it has to be accelerated. Your progression has to be accelerated. But I found it quite sort of welcoming to think that even though I've only just killed two ghouls, I've still got enough mm. experience to go to level two. Go me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it just took me by surprise, and I thought. It was just made it on, on. It made the the level of difficulty um, counter to weight. Your progression is accelerated, yet it's still quite tough. And I found that it's like like a, a not an abridged version, but a shorter sort of compressed version of the more traditional, you know, double A. Is it if you can say uh, action adventure games with uh, teams yeah. of uh, tens of people uh, making. Um, all these assets to 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 make those games a reality. Uh, whereas what you've got here is something far smaller and shorter, but not not doesn't dilute the experience. Is what you've tried to do. Uh, I just found it. It was. I think it's more like a byproduct that it just so happens that yes, for practical practical reasons, you had to accelerate uh, um, progression, character progression, I should say. Whereas the bonus of that is it actually rewards the player more than you'd expect which is nice yes i do i do think it's all yeah i, I think uh i think so and and it's one of those things where we we definitely did accelerate it a little bit just to make it feel like uh, like you're not stuck um or you know if, if you really do want to grind it out it is still possible um and and not something that would take forever um i don't know i i I'm definitely just a fan of uh, of quick progression. I guess it's probably why, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. So, last question then. See, well done, you made it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about the art design and and the music, of course, but uh, just the general sort of visual style you've adopted. And what I found is a lot of fluid movement, a lot of particle effects. Um, and that kind of thing. How has that impacted on the design of the levels, and indeed the way in which you engage with enemies? Do you think um, the art style? Hmm. Just the whole 
because it's, it's very it's very important that you know like you said you need to the, the it's the animation isn't just an aesthetic it is key to how one plays the game because you need to know at what frame is there is the enemy about to swipe or are they or yeah. they um on the return swing and then you can jab them you know yeah how important as that mechanic then bled into the actual design of the art style itself. How have you balanced the two, if indeed they need to be? Oof, that is a that is an interesting question, uh, hard question too, because um, there's a lot of I guess parts to that. I mean, if we were to talk about the animations, uh, I would say that's a whole different beast from the environment art uh, and the level design. Um, so let's see. Um, I'll talk about the easier part, the okay. environment, and the environment and the level design <laughs> first. Um, so the art style uh, was pretty much um, derived from from a whole host of other games by Alex Guadero, the art director on the project, um, and it also was just an evolution of of himself as he, if we were working on the project. Um, he evolved the art style into where it is now, and, it, and uh, it's it's amazing. It's it's beautiful, um, and it helped influence the level design um, in a certain way. I think at the beginning, and for, actually for the most part of development, it, it forced us to not use tile sets, and I think that's a big um, that that is a big uh, specific thing about our game because a lot of games kind of just you know you make the tile set and they just make the level, but no, a lot a lot of our levels are just straight up. Um, no tiles. It's just a, a whole arted up thing. He, yes. He, yes. <laughs> or Alex. Yes. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Sorry, we're, we're no, I'm just I'm just agreeing with you. It's, it's true. It's a when you're walking around these environments, you definitely feel it's a, it's one massive tile. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So you're saying there's no tile sets or counter? It is. It's just one. <laughs> it's just one big tile. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that definitely influenced level design a lot. Um, uh, it, uh, it also made it, you know, it, it made it so that the world felt more intentional, if that makes sense. Like everything about the world is, you know, unique to, to that point in the level. Um, and it, it feels, um, to me, it, it feels, uh, it feels nicer than if it was tied. Um, it also took a lot longer <laughs> to make, um, and uh, it took a lot of iteration, um, and a lot of that was not, honestly, partly, it, it was not because it was the smartest thing to do at times, I will say. Um, I think we did try tiled levels, and it didn't fully work out the first two times that we did it. Um, and now that we're working on new content, we tried it again, and it's worked uh, pretty beautifully. In fact, it worked amazingly well for some of the new areas that we're working on. Um, but regardless, um, for most of the current content that's in the game right now, it's been the case, and it's really influenced the level design. Um, I will, I will say that uh, that's pretty key to the, the art style of the game. Um, I, I don't know. We're okay. So animations. That was the other part of the question. That was the, that was the key component of the question. Is that you know how you manage uh, animation design versus the key mechanic of the game of, oh, he's about to swing. You know, how do you make yeah. sure that it looks great, yet it also advertises enough to the player that some really bad thing is about to happen, or not, as the case may be? 
Yeah, and this is just the case with a lot of games, right? Um, animations for enemies have to telegraph that something's going to happen, something bad's going to happen, and, and if possible, telegraph what exactly is going to happen. If it's going to be like a thrust attack, or if it's going to be a sweep attack, or if it's going to uh, if it's going to be a heavy attack or a quick attack, um, and I think that's that's the biggest thing right now for for a game. It's just um, you know when we're designing animations, we I, we kind of you know, a lot of the design com comes from the animator himself. Um, the animator himself has to basically say, okay, well, it covers this amount of ground and it does this and that. Um, we generally have to decide whether it's a light attack or a heavy attack. Um, so heavy attacks usually um, are slower and you want to dodge them and light attacks are usually faster and you want to block them. Um, I don't know if that comes around, uh, you know, if, you, if that is something that players eventually understand, but it's okay um, because you could technically dodge any attack in the game or you could technically block any attack in the game. Some are better to block and some are better to dodge. Um, but um, the animations and the art style um, are very... Um, we definitely wanted it to be as clear as possible, basically. Um, and that definitely influenced the art style. Um, just you want to be able to see what part of the attack deals damage you know, as opposed to um, if it was kind of like very blurry or smeared, you wouldn't be able to kind of, I guess, understand what's happening again. So we just, our goal with the art style was to be as clear as possible. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that's kind of uh, that's kind of where we went with it. No, it does. Um, no, it does. It, it, it's, um, <laughs> you absolutely, I think I love the, the, the description of telegraphing. It's like, you know, we've got to, you got to give the player a chance you know, just to um, slam a, a dark sword on a dark background. It's like, where's that from? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How about that? You, you know, yeah. at least give it something. We definitely care a lot about um, different colors clashing with each other. Um, we want to make sure that enemies stand out from their backgrounds. That's that's a big one. That's a yeah. big, important uh, design factor. Yes. Yeah. Well... There it is. Death's Gambit. It's uh, by White Rabbit Studios. It's out now uh, on Windows PC and PlayStation 4. There's more content to come, as we've hinted out already. I understand. Is that, is that this is going to be a free DLC patch thing? Yes, it is a free DLC expansion, really, because it's enormous at this point. Wow. Um, it's uh, it, it revamps the game, and we're going to try to treat it as a... Um, I wouldn't say a re-release because the main game is 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 there. Yeah. But um, but it uh, it is big, and it is free, and it is kind of just us saying, um, it's kind of like a big thank you to our fans who who've been there from the start. And uh, I think I think this is going to be a it it takes the game from I would say a good game to uh to a very very good game and i'm very we're very excited to to show it off well i'm, I'm excited to see it um john it's been fantastic having you on thank you so much for being so open and honest about the design and development of death scam thank you yeah thank you this has been a great talk yeah I, I, it sounded like you got something out of it i know i did i'm sure our audience did as well uh and you're more than welcome to come back to chat about whatever next project you have in mind after death scam bit is is done which it will be very soon. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yep. but in the meantime, thank you very, very much.
thank you um have a great day and, and thank you everyone for listening